0: Welcome to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. The podcast that's more 90s than Noel's Crinkly Bottom. It's been 30 years since that show first aired. Saturday night, at its best. My name's Ash Rose, your host and your guide on this. The original 1990s football podcast, Alive and Kicking. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode. Thank you very much if you're rejoining us for the first time after last time, because our last episode, our kind of first episode in this new era, new series, new season, whatever you want to call it, with Glenn Hoddle, went down a bloody treat. I'll tell you that. Uh, many thanks again to Glenn and to the team uh, at HarperCollins for uh, allowing us to chat to him. He was brilliant, wasn't he? I mean, you wouldn't really expect anything less of a man who... Spends his obviously his actual job now talking about football um, on various outlets. Saw a on Talksport the other day, but yeah, I think he's usually on BT Sport, isn't he? But that no, was good. It was good to delve in to some of those topic topics that we did. Um, got that lovely little snippet for about Dennis Bergkamp. So, um, and many thanks to Talksport actually for picking that up and putting on their website. Um, yeah, I never knew that. I have found some evidence of it before. It wasn't quite the exclusive I'd hoped for, but even so, it wasn't generally know because i didn't know that i didn't know the burkham thing so um thanks very much for revealing that ex- almost exclusive with us uh glenn what we're doing today though um kind of doing a one-two in typical glenn hoddle fashion off that interview because an episode we did last series or last year kind of a weird year wasn't it in terms of everything but it was a weird year for us as well just trying to work out what to do with the podcast and, and trying to find everyone's time and and get everyone in line and uh, you know the world was crazy but what we did manage to one of the episodes we did manage to do was an episode with um sam homewood who is a presenter for man united tv as well as doing a lot of kids stuff as well um i think he does how i don't know if it's still around but at that point he was just launching how but we did a theme of hit my 90s we called it and we talked man united for the whole episode pretty much and Sam talked to you, you know, and we talked to you through a, a few topics that we, we gave him. And it was really enjoyable because I was always fearful when we do uh, a one team topic, because I don't want to alienate any listeners. Um, I know we're all fans in the 90s, but we all support football clubs as well. But to be honest, uh, a friend of the show and somebody I'm hoping is going to become another regular voice on this in the coming weeks and months, uh, Sashi um does a brilliant podcast called The Fans Podcast. Um, which I've been on, um, check that out, Cheap Plug, where he basically talks to fans about their fandom of their club. Um, I obviously did a QPR one. And I've really enjoyed listening to the other teams. Um, there's been some great guests on it. I think Leon Mann, the journalist, has just done the Tottenham one. He did a a, a Middlesbrough one recently with, with, I can't remember who it was now, Adrian Bevington, is that his name? But yeah, they're great shows. And it made me think that maybe they are... People do like listening to other clubs. And now Man United episode went down really well. Sorry, it's his long-winded way around to say that today, having listened to Glenn and talked about the Chelsea Revolution in the 90s, we're gonna delve deep into Chelsea and do a My 90s on Chelsea. Um, so don't go don't don't press pause, don't press stop. If that doesn't sound of interest to you, if you don't like Chelsea or whatever reason, hey, I'm a QPR fan. If there's anyone who shouldn't enjoy listening or talking about Chelsea on a on a podcast, it's me. But I think we're all 90s fans and it's really interesting chat looking at who likes who. And, w- you know, there's me, there's Matthew Chris, who's a Man United fan. We've got the landlord from the football tavern who never reveals what team he supports. So it's not just Chelsea. We all get to, to put in um, the voice behind it all. Is somebody who's been associated with Chelsea for a very long time. As we as we find out, there are many strings to his Chelsea bow. Uh, Neil Barnett joins us. Um, he's been part of the program team, matchday announcing team. We'll get into it, but we're getting to a lot of '90s Chelsea. But as I say, we spin off to many more as well. So it's a really enjoyable chat. Um, adding to that, there's more people. There is more. We've also got a special guest as well. I am going to, as I said in, I think the intro to last week, we are going to try and incorporate the guests into the chat a bit more rather than uh, an interview in the middle, which has kind of been our stable hold throughout the Little life and kickins life. But this was recorded uh, a while back because it's also a part of a recording. I'm doing for a new book as well, which I will talk about in due course, but squeezed in the middle of our Chelsea chat, we chat to former who's also, also got a book out this Christmas as well. Check it out. Uh, I'll give the plug during the show Former Chelsea and Newcastle and QPR. So there's a bit of chat on all that as well. Gavin Peacock, Joins Alive and Kicking, which has also got a very interesting story because to anyone who doesn't know, his after football career is somewhat very different to many of the footballers of this time or any time. stuff. He's not a pundit. He's not a coach. He does something very different. If he doesn't know already, then find out on today's show. So, yes, that was uh, a bit of a long winded way to say today is my 90s Chelsea with Neil Barnett, with Gavin Peacock. So this is alive and kicking enjoy today's show
1: sit back and enjoy a nostalgic ride through the decade that truly changed the face of football if the 90s are now retro then it's time for a celebration welcome to alive and kicking the 90s football podcast
0: Welcome to Alive and Kicking and it's my 90s time. We haven't done one of these shows uh, for a while but given we spoke to Glenn Hoddle last week and that chat by all accounts went down very well we thought we won two off Glenn which um, you'd probably love and, and talk a bit more about Chelsea in the 90s um, and we'll do that with our special guest today. Before I introduce him let me introduce my merry men who are always talking 90s football. First he is he's almost the I was going to call you the grandfather clock, but that's what I used to call Joe. So you're some sort of other part of furniture in the alive and kicking world. He is an author, he's a writer and the host of the Brian McClare podcast. Matthew Christ, how are you doing on this very cold, wintry day?
2: I'm good, thanks. But to be um, compared to the grandfather clock (laughs) is, um, you know, a a huge compliment. But um, what's the what's the other version of a grandfather? You get the grandmother clock.
0: Why not? eh? We'll call you that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, maybe, maybe. Maybe not. Maybe the coffee table.
0: Or yeah, you could be the coffee table. Um, joining as well, our super new signing for the season. Here's the landlord of the Football Tavern on Twitter, Ed Chambers. Ed, how are you doing today? I'm very well, Ash. How are you? Thanks for having me back. No, thank you for coming on again. I'm very well. I'm very good. And join us to, to kind of lead our chat of Chelsea in the 90s. Someone who had his fingers in many pies in the club and still covers them vastly today. Um, he tell us all about his days as, uh, across the programme, stadium announcer Neil Barnett. Welcome to uh, to alive and kicking, sir.
3: Uh yeah, I, I was still alive and kicking in the nineties. Uh, <laughs> a bit more decrepit these days. I don't feel it. It's, isn't it funny it, as I, as you approach your seventies, as I am, you still feel as though you're approaching your twenties. Um, you know, to to be honest. Uh, People say, when's your midlife crisis? I haven't come to terms with puberty yet.
0: (laughs) So the 90s just must feel about a couple of days ago to you then, Neil. So we're not really going that far, are we?
3: Well, in terms of Chelsea, I I mean... Chelsea won the European Cup Winners' Cup in 1971 yep. and then won NAFOL until 1997. We did win the ZDS Cup oh. and the Full Members' Cup in glorious moments at Wembley. Um, actually, the... Uh, the uh, um, Which one was it? The 19... Uh, 19 boom, boom, boom. The ZDS Cup in 19... No, the Full Members' Cup in 1986 was my first game at Wembley as in the press
0: box. Oh, okay. We remember the ZDS very well. I always remember the ZDS being one of the first things Sky Sports got before they got the premier league. Yeah. Well, that the... was
3: 1990. We won it in 1990, uh, one nil against, I can't even remember, Middlesbrough. It was Middlesbrough, Middlesbrough yeah. Middlesbrough, <laughs> at Wembley. Yeah, yeah. 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 We, we have another what guy. What happened to Middlesbrough?
0: Yeah. Well, we have another guy on this show who sadly can't make it today, Joel, who's a big Middlesbrough fan. And, uh, Constantly reminds us of that day. I think we had Tony DeRigo on the show once, didn't we, Matthew? And he, he rated him, yeah, because he scored yeah. the goal yeah, in yeah. that in that ZDS final. Um, so yeah, we we're familiar with that um, with that event. Um, can we can I some...
3: tell you a 1990s Middlesbrough story? Before Why not? We start. We go for it. It's from the it's from the 1997 <laughs> FA Cup final when yeah. uh, Roberto Di Matteo scored then the quickest goal ever in the FA Cup final, uh, 43 seconds. Um, and uh, Middlesbrough's first choice goalkeeper was Mark Schwarzer but they signed him uh, after the third round of the FA Cup so he was cup tied Uh, and they had the young homegrown goalkeeper uh, in goal that day whose name completely escapes me now Um, Ben Roberts Ben Roberts Ben Roberts well done impressed well (laughs) done thank you very much (laughs) Uh, and I met him many years later he was goalkeeper coach of Chelten and I met him many years later uh, uh, and uh, he, at Charlton's training ground, uh, where I was down there to interview someone, and I reminded him immediately of that wonderful moment uh, when uh, Dimitar broke through from the centre circle and hit the screaming 25 yarder over his head into the roof of the net. Uh, and he said his main memory of that now is something that he wasn't even aware of at the time, which was sitting behind the goal was were his parents, Oh. Uh, to see his great day at Wembley and after 43 seconds when <laughs> Di Matteo smashed the ball into the net his mother just burst into tears oh, no. uh, and that's his that's his abiding memory of the uh, of the occasion even though uh, even though he wasn't aware of it at the time oh. Ben Roberts good man good man
0: okay. quite a nomadic career I was just looking him up actually yeah he's now a, a goalkeeping coach at Brighton but he spent a lot of time on loan at different clubs and stuff but yeah well remembered there Ed like, that one escaped me as well I had to Google it so. <laughs> Or well remembered. Um, let's talk Chelsea then. I think what uh, maybe more than any other club, because what we always say on here as well is the, ni- the 1990s in football is the decade that changed football, blah, blah, blah. We always say that, but especially from a snapshot point of view, if you look at 1990 and then 1999, I always say football is very different. And particularly I think in Chelsea's case, when you think of the early 90s, them coming up obviously in the in the late 80s into the top division Stanford Bridge, the way it looked and then by 99 and this is even before abramovich of course and you had you know the superstars the medals that you mentioned if you neil if you could sum up Chelsea in in, in the 90s and how what what are your what comes to your mind first when you think of Chelsea in the 1990s
3: um coming into it optimism uh, yeah. we still had some senior players who had been bought who who were uh, around their prime, Steve Carr, Tony DiRigo, uh, Kerry Dixon was still scoring goals, uh, so optimism. Um, but we, we there was a battle for the ownership of Stamford Bridge, and uh, there was planning permission to develop the whole site uh, and to kick Chelsea out, and, and uh, that battle um, really interrupted progress. In, in the summer of 1990 Chelsea spent a million pounds on transfer on the transfer for the first time and in fact did it twice uh Andy Townsend and Dennis Wise but by 1993 Gordon Jury had been sold because money was short Graham Stewart was let go uh, there were some a lot of good youngsters David Lee Gareth Hall Graham Stewart Frank Sinclair uh, Eddie Newton uh, Andy Myers and, and, and Graham Masseau had been signed as an 18-year-old from from uh Jersey. Uh, and they were let go. I mean, Graham Stewart was let go, Graham Masseau was a let go, and, and um Andy Townsend went in '93. Uh, it was but in '93 as well, there was a complete change of policy. And Glenn Hoddle was signed as yeah. player manager to bring the football back, the Osgood cook hudson quality football back and it was a battle for glenn but by, by by boxing day in 93 we're in the relegation zone um and and Mark steen and gavin peacock a couple of signings helped us out but we got to an fa cup final for the first time 94 our first fa cup final our first final since the 1972 league cup final um our first fa cup final since since um 1970. We lost to Manchester United, but they won the double. So we went into the European Cup Winners' Cup, and we got to the semi-final in 95. This was a team without grace. It was a team without quality, but it was a team with doggedness, with fire. And in 95, there was another change of policy. So money was. We won the battle of the ground, but but money was. We had a Ken Bates had had. had Got a massive Euro bond and borrowed, borrowed Chelsea up to the hilt. Uh, so we, you know, Manchester United copied us under the Glazers uh, in the 2000s. But we were there first. We he we, we bought this massive Euro bond and then Matthew Harding came on the scene and injected some money. And in 95, it was decided that Chelsea were going to make a go of it with Hubble, and we signed Rude Hullet, Mark Hughes. And Dan Petrescu, three world-class players. Mm-hmm. And although the football just flowered, the, the, the results didn't. We got to the semi-final of the FA Cup. We played some glorious football. And Glenn Hoddle got the England job. And Rude Hullet, because he'd been a successful player and manager, Rude Hullet just stepped into the office. And everything just took off. L- let me tell you of one occasion that happened. Uh, Chelsea's training ground then was at the old Harlington where Queen's Park Rangers, are you a QPR supporter?
0: I am, yep. Yeah. so this is controversial for me, but yeah
3: Well, I, I have to tell you, that the beginning of the 1990s up until 1991, from 86 to 91 I did QPR, call. I, oh, okay. I used to do QPR, Chelsea and Wimbledon all at the same time and when two of the clubs played each other on a Friday night before the game both managers would call me up and say what's the other team? <laughs> and I'd tell them to F off because I, I did know both teams. Yeah. But, I, you know, if I told one, I had to tell the yeah. other. And it kind of got a bit, it, it got, it was just the early days of, of club uh, communications and it yeah. all got a bit tight. And when I got the chance to get out and work for Chelsea alone, which was my club. Uh, in 91, I did, but but QPR were a smashing little club in those days, not now, but anyway, that's another. <laughs> we're story. still at Harlington, though, Neil. We're still at Harlington, <laughs> yeah, you are. Which is, that's yeah. what that's what made me think of it, yeah. So, um, uh, when Rude Hullet held his first press conference as Chelsea manager at Harlington as opposed to at Stamford Bridge, um, it, it was in summer and they couldn't fit everybody into the room that had been designated, so he held it out. On the training ground, it was a sunny day. He held out on the training ground. The place was packed. We'd never seen anything like that at Chelsea. We knew that times had changed. I mean, Glenn Hoddle was was um, this this English superstar. Ruud Hulick was a global superstar. This was this was a massive change. And of course, his first signings were Gianluca Vialli, Frank LeBeuf, Roberto Di Matteo, and Gianfranco Zola. I, everything changed yeah. just everything changed and we welcome back really for the first time since the 60s and early 70s with all due respect to the john Neal side the the dixon speedy nevin side we we welcome back sexy football as rude defined it and and uh, um we won the fa cup in 97 we uh we we just played glorious football and and uh then the Chelsea DNA of now was kind of uh, began to be built. We got to the semi-finals of the League Cup, quarter-finals, the European Cup winners' cup, and we sat the manager. Uh, Gianluca Vialli took over, player-manager, and uh, we finished the 90s in the Champions League mm. uh, for the first time. And um, we'd... Uh, uh, by uh, New Year's Eve 1999, we're in the, we were heading to, it was in the days when there were two group stages in yeah. the Champions League, and we were heading to the quarterfinals of the Champions League. And, and if in football terms we can call 99-2000 uh, uh, part of the 90s, yeah. so I can go into early 2000, we won the first leg of the quarterfinal of the Champions League against Barcelona by three goals to one at Stamford Bridge on a famous night. Solar free kick, flow, Torre Andre flow two goals, and 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 Lewis Figo gave one of the greatest opposing performances I'd seen at that stage at Stamford Bridge that night. And and uh, it, what a night that was. And uh, it was a different level of football to 1990 when we were playing the likes of Queen's Park Rangers.
0: <laughs> uh, at this point, I can remind you that we were top London club in 1993. But um, that's, the, that's the only achievement we, we get to, to say over Chelsea.
4: If anybody's if anybody's playing top London club bingo, we're about 10, 15 <laughs> minutes into this. And here we are. Ash has mentioned it. So uh, there yeah, you go.
0: Well, we have to cling on to something uh, in the nineties. Uh, before we ask <laughs> Neil, Neil about just, some of these... go on, no, go yes, on, go on, Ed. No, go
4: for that it. I was just saying that you've sort of given a very, very good snapshot there of Chelsea from nineteen ninety 1990 to nineteen ninety-nine. Obviously, Chelsea in eighty-nine, ninety came up from the or what was the second division then into the first division. That's quite an evolution, isn't it? To 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 come up from what is now the Championship, and within ten years, you're as you said, you've ended a decade in in the Champions League and two final. That's
3: quite a. That's no, quite because, a, that's quite a, a, a journey. No, because Chelsea shouldn't have. It was only one season in the in the second year. Right. Chelsea okay. got relegated through uh-huh. complete mismanagement, utter right. appalling uh, um, off pitch conduct by some of the players, total mm-hmm. falling out. Uh, in, in I think it was um, eighty between uh, eighty six, I think it was and eighty eight. I think every single player in the club at some stage asked to leave. Right. It wasn't a good dressing room. It
4: was but to, not but to, get from, room. to get from to get to get from that point.
3: Yeah, but there was to, there uh, were players. I mean, we had Kerry Dixon scoring 20 goals a year. We had Gordon Jury there or thereabouts when he wasn't yeah. on the treatment table. Uh um, we we had some top, top players. Uh uh we had Steve Clark and Tony DeRigo. Uh Graham Roberts played in the promotion year. He he was an outstanding captain. Uh, Graham Lassault was was a burgeoning talent. Come on, come on, no, we had we should just never ever have gone down. It was it was disgraceful management.
0: Matthew, what are your I mean, before we ask Neil about some of his favourites, what are your abiding memories of Chelsea in the nineties? Because there's a lot that obviously Neil's picked out there, but from an opposing, obviously or a Man United point of view, what do you you obviously remember that cup final we mentioned in '94? But what were Chelsea to you in the '90s?
2: Yeah, well, I was thinking about this last night because obviously I knew we were going to be discussing it. And, I, and the first thing that came into my head was that sort of evolution. And I was thinking, there's probably not any other club other than maybe United in the '90s that had such a huge transformation from the beginning of the decade to the end, like like Neil said. And uh, you know, everyone obviously. If you watch that, well, um,
3: Liverpool did because they stopped but, winning. <laughs> well, they went the other way, yeah, <laughs> decline.
2: If you watch that BBC documentary that was on a few weeks ago about the um, you know, the, the rise of the Premier League and what have yeah. you, I mean, I thought that was a bit United heavy. I don't know what you thought about it, but yeah, if you watch definitely. that, if you watch that, you would think no one, had, no one else did anything in the nineties apart from United, and then maybe Arsenal at the end. But I mean, in terms of achievements, I think you'd have to put Chelsea up there relatively. I know United won more trophies, but in terms of the Ed said that, that famous word, the journey that they went on. Um, mm-hmm. you, probably no one else went as far as them. And, and in terms of memories, I, mean, I do remember Chelsea having a bit of a, they were a bit of a bogey side for United in that. Yeah, year, we were. In, those in fact, the sort of, year...
3: The year the year 94 When United won the cup final Chelsea, Chelsea won 1-0 At Stamford Bridge yeah. And Old Trafford And yeah. Gavin Peacock Got the winning goal Both times And, yeah. and there Something was a we lot had. of that we, we hardly lost At Old Trafford they, You used to go out there Get absolutely bombed For 15 minutes Hang on Cling on And yeah. then Old Trafford Went silent and, yeah. and both Old Trafford And Anfield 15 minutes in And it just goes silent It mm. is a wonderful Kind of A, a wonderful feeling I, I just must quickly Tell you um, um, on Saturday I was at Leicester uh, at the KP Stadium where, where Chelsea thumped Leicester and um, I, I was walking into the press box and I, I, I didn't know where my seat was I couldn't I had my my ID over my head and I couldn't see if the seat was on there and I was standing there lingering like an old man and um, I heard this unbroken voice behind me going oh my god oh my god God, And I turned round, and there were these two 10-year-olds, about 10-year-olds here. And this kid who was talking said, I've never seen anything like this my first time. Oh, my God. And that's what football stadia do to you. Mm. And, and it was just an electric moment that took me back to my first game in 1959. It was just an electric moment. And it's interesting there, Matthew, you talking about Manchester United winning more trophies than anybody in the 90s. Um, but I re- one of the teams that won a trophy, and it was their last trophy of significance in the 90s, was Leeds won yeah. the league in, in 1992 with Cantona. I remember Cantona scoring against Chelsea at, at, at Ellen Road um, just before uh, they won the league. And 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 I remember a game in in much later in 2001, a League Cup tie at Ellen Road, where they had a good team again and they got to the semi-finals of the Champions League the summer before. And they thought they were going to win something. And we went up there, uh, we'd come back in more controversial moments and We've just been to a tie in Israel where six people didn't go after 9-11. Six players didn't go. and These thought they were going to thump us. And so we went there and we won 2-0. Uh, and I remember the feeling in Ellen Road that night. We thought we were going to win. This is another trophy we haven't yeah. won. It's now nine years since we won something. This is something we haven't won. You have to win things. Message to Tottenham. You have to win things. Um, And it doesn't. You start when Mourinho came in at Chelsea. He won the League Cup. When Mourinho came in at Man United, he won the League Cup. You have to win things in order to become a team capable of fighting for the the highest trophies. And and in 1990s, Chelsea learnt to win things again. Manchester United uh, learnt to win things uh, with the FA Cup. In was it ninety? Uh, uh, and and they hadn't won anything for for five or six years when when they won that. You have to win things. And I can still remember winning the FA Cup semi-final in 97, having lost the FA Cup final in 94, winning the semi-final in 97 at Highbury against Wimbledon and the celebrations, the celebrations, because there was a feeling that the team was good enough to go on and win something. It was, it's, you have to win things. So message to all those teams, you know, people laugh at Arsenal uh, and quite rightly, um, I think Arsenal are hilarious, but they've won the FA Cup several times while Tottenham have won nothing.
0: Very true. Very true. Um, I'd, I'd like to know what winning things is, a, is about as a QPR fan, Neil, but we don't, we don't get many we don't get many days like that. Um, let's go on to your favourites then. Um, Player, I, I said to the boys before you came on, I had a sneaking suspicion who it might be, but often people on this surprise me. So if you could pick one player, your sneaking me,
3: suspicion is that it's Gianfranco's. Yes, somewhere.
0: it would be. Are you going to surprise me though? Not
3: really. <laughs> no, I'm, I mean it, it, It's different when you ask someone like me because, of course, I was working with them and I knew yeah. them all, uh, and and I I was probably closest to Dennis Wise, and 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 uh, I love wise I absolutely adore Wisey. I I actually. I, as I said to you, I was doing QPR, Chelsea, and Wimbledon Codcall call. And my first uh, Wimbledon cod call interview was at their training ground, uh, which was a public park, by the mm, way. I remember uh, yeah. uh, down at Richardson Evans on, on the A3, uh, um, outside Richmond Park. Uh, oh no, actually, my first interview wasn't there. It was at Plough Lane. It was at Plough Lane, and they were away on pre-season. This was summer 1987. They were away on pre-season. And they hadn't taken this teenager because he had a broken wrist or something. Uh, and he was at the ground. So I went and interviewed him and that was like a 19 year old Dennis wise. <laughs> and, and, and um, I, I kind of, <laughs> his career, and my career grew together in terms of uh, uh, club football. And uh, yeah. So, so I door wise, I'm still in regular touch with a lot of the nineties players. Um And I think Dennis Wise became a top, top midfielder. I mean, a really outstanding midfielder. Uh, um, And and there were just so... When we signed Rude Hullet, Mark Hughes, Wise was recovering again from an injury. This was 95. And he was at Stamford Bridge uh, having some treatment when I went in for the Hullet press conference. And, And it was at that press conference. It was announced that we'd signed Hughes as well. And uh, a lot of the players were. Oh my God! I'm not sure if I'm comfortable with this. You know, my position might be under threat. And why is he turn around? They were, all the players used to call me spy. And why does he turn around? when I went into the dressing room, and and uh, uh, it was the first time he'd seen me in the in some you know since summer. And he just turned around and he goes, "Do yourself a favor, spy. Go and put money on us to win something." And of course, that was when we hadn't won anything. And all he cared about was the team improves with better players coming in and he improved with better players coming in. So special, special uh, 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 feelings for him. And for so many uh, in that team as they grew up, all the kids who I watched in the reserves and the youth team, who I mentioned, Sinclair, Newton, Lee, all all those, Hall, just uh, Myers, Doobery later, uh, just brilliant, brilliant kids. But Zola changed everything football-wise. Yeah. I mean, Hullet changed a lot, but Hullet, Hullet changed the club. Zola changed the football. Mm. And, and um, I'll tell you one lovely story. Um, Hullet, when he took over, introduced pre-training training for those who were technically challenged. Wow. because he couldn't believe how poor some of the actual football <laughs> uh, basics were. And, of course, a lot of the people that he uh, wanted in half an hour early to do technical work were youth team products. And they were, oh, bloody hell, why are he's picking yeah. on us? And they had to go in and do this touch football. And when Zola realized that they were doing this, he went in and joined them. Because he wanted to work on his technique before training, because he saw it as an opportunity to improve even more. And when he did it, they were all happy to do it. Mm-hmm. And that his attitude changed the attitude to training in so many ways. And and he was just he was just um, that the player who came in. And opened our minds, I think, to a different technical side of football. Before him was Dan Petrescu. Yeah. Dan Dan Petrescu would pass and move like no one we'd seen. Uh, He'd want the ball with a man on him. And he'd give it back and go and lose that man. And then expect the ball back again. And, And technically, Dan Petrescu was a phenomenal player. Then... Or movement-wise and technical. Then you had Hoddle and then Hollett, with who, who were just on a different plane in in terms of what they could do with the ball. But Zola, all round with his on the footballing side, just changed so much, and 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 was just such a delight. And mm-hmm. and um, it, it, it was he was brilliant. He was yeah. absolutely brilliant. So. I'll probably go Franco in the end. And I think all the other players would probably go Franco as well, because he was just such a nice bloke uh, yeah, before, as well.
0: Before uh, we go to a, a quick break, uh, let's get a couple of Zola memories from, from the guys. I mean, Ed, I know you've got, you talk a lot of Chelsea in, in the tavern. I mean, what are yeah. your Zola memories? I mean, you talk about that semi final, Neil, previously. I remember a Zola goal in that semi final when they were in that yellow kit that was yeah. memorable. What, what, what for you stands out about Zola in that decade? Me, uh, uh, I
4: I just seem to recall, uh, as Neil was saying, the sort of how technical and how how very good Zola was. There were a number of goals. You've mentioned the goal there at Highbury. I seem to recall one um, against Julian Dix. I think it was uh, where <laughs> he kind of he kind of knocked the ball inside and then outside, and and Dix kind of looked a bit lost, and then he smashed it. Uh, uh, I interviewed Mark Hughes. Back.
3: I interviewed Mark Hughes after that goal on Chelsea right. Club Call and his description of it was Franco gave Julian Dix twisted blood. Right. <laughs> well, there you go. And that's, that's one thing I, I certainly remember about Zola.
4: And I think Neil's kind of sort of confirmed something that I've sort of long felt that from afar is that Gianfranco Zola comes across like the nicest man in the world. Yeah. And um, it seems like, I mean, that story was great about him coming in and sort of working with the kids and stuff. And I think that I think that was a really good mark of the man, by the sounds of it.
0: And Matthew, I mean, you know what I'm going to ask you. That day, he danced through the Man United defence at Stamford Bridge like they weren't there. I mean, that was one of the moments we all stood up and went, "Wow!" You must remember yeah, that one.
2: I do, but in fairness, he seemed to do that. Looking from afar, he seemed to do yeah. that every week or every other week. And you know, I remember there was that famous goal where he scored from a corner. I think it was where he, he sort of flicked it with the. Yeah, Norwich, yeah, wasn't yeah, it?
0: Norwich. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Let me tell you about the goal against United at Stamford Bridge. It was after two minutes. And uh, Phil Neville was man-marking him. And it was the first time that we'd seen man-marking in a long time. Uh, And um, Alex Ferguson, in his press conference afterwards, said, we man-marked him because we think he's so good. But I've got to admit, I didn't know he was that good. (laughs) Because he was used to being man-marked in Italy. And the first thing he did was go wide and stand on the flank where Neville didn't want to go because he was expecting to play through the middle. And Neville didn't know whether to follow him or not. And by the time he'd made his mind up, Franco had gone through the whole defence and school.
0: That was a memory. It was definitely a memory. And he got player of the year that season, even though he signed quite late. Didn't no, he? he didn't.
3: Mark Hughes got player of the
0: year No, the, I think he got the, didn't he get the PFA or the football writers? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah he got his, the
3: football writers player. Yeah. Are we allowed to swear on here?
0: Yeah, a lit. I, I once or twice we are explicit. Yes, yeah. <laughs> quite badly. Uh, yeah, sorry. Quite badly. Can we swear? Quite badly. Not quite badly. No, we're not in that category. Unfortunately,
3: I won't tell you that story. Oh, then. could you not <laughs> bleep it out? <laughs> okay, here we we'll go. Do that one off air.
0: Yeah, <laughs>
1: here we go.
3: Uh, this is how much football has changed since the nineties. Uh, every, every year, Chelsea used to have a, a Christmas. Uh, lunch or Christmas dinner with the fans mm. and a player of the year dinner and, and I used to host them and, and this Christmas dinner I'd go up to Wisey as, as Dennis Wise as captain and I'd say come on get up and say a few words and you'd tell me to F off uh, and uh, then I'd go back and in the end he, he, this year I went up to him and I said come on you've got to say a few words and he goes ah. he said I'll only do it if Franco does it so I went up to Franco And I said, Franco, Wisey's going to get up and say a few words, but he needs you to go up with him. Lying, of course. So, Franco said, oh, all right. So, the pair of them went up in the end. And I had no idea what they were going to do. And I gave, and Wisey took the microphone off me. There was just one microphone. And he said, right, he said, Gianfranco, repeat after me. And Franco nodded. And he goes, I am. Uh, Franco goes, I am, <laughs> and he goes, the best player, the best player in the club, in the club, and everyone else, and everyone else is in shit. Is <laughs> <Shit>! <laughs> and the whole place stood up and there was this massive ovation everyone was in hysterics and the two got down and that's all they did and it was absolutely brilliant and it was fans and players in complete and utter togetherness but if you did that now it'd be on social media they yeah. get they'd get they'd get uh hammered by the uh, public media, because the public media need to hammer individuals. But that was players and supporters in one, in absolute hysterics. Standing ovation for a 30-second turn by both of them. Just two brilliant
0: people. Brilliant stuff. Well, we'll hear more from Neil after this uh, short interlude where we're speaking to someone who actually played for Chelsea in the 1990s, as well as Newcastle and the Great Queen's Park Rangers. Here's somebody who's got a book out, so put it on your Christmas list because it's a book that's slightly different to some other autobiographies only because of this person's career path that has seen him a second life almost after football. The book's called A Greater Glory, From Pitch to Pulpit. That might give you a clue. It's Gavin Peacock, who I think Neil has mentioned already on today's show. He spoke to me. It was earlier this year actually i've been saving it uh, towards christmas time so you can uh, i can sell the book for him as well but it's an interesting chat with gavin who obviously has got a very different knife now he lives in canada uh, and he gets into all that as well as his time uh, playing in the 90s so here is me speaking to gavin peacock on alive and kicking Joining me on the show now, pleasure to talk to someone, especially me as a QPR fan, but he represented Chelsea and Newcastle in the 1990s as well. He's got a brand new book about which we'll chat about in a second. Welcome to Alive and In. Gavin Peacock. How are you doing, sir? I'm good, thanks, Ash. Good to be with you.
1: And you, yes.
0: So you're, And you're, not, you're far away in the world at the moment. Where are you based these days?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm based in Calgary, Alberta in Western Canada, so a lot of older listeners might remember uh, the Calgary Winter Olympics and Eddie the Eagle back in, yeah. um, and I'm literally where I, my house is is about uh, 15 minutes away from uh, the, the the COP, the the, the, the Calgary Olympic uh, Plaza where uh, Eddie did the jump. So I'm in the Rocky Mountain Territory. I've been out here since 2008 uh, when I came to to finish some theological studies, um, and I was looking to come back in 2011. And ended up being offered a position at a church here in Calgary, uh, where I'm one of the leaders, and uh, ended up staying. Now my kids are uh, are married here, um, and I've just had, we've just had our first grand uh, child, a little boy called Charlie, about five months old now. So, uh,
0: congrats, congrats! It's, it's, it's bizarre for actually because we're from the same neck of the woods as well. I and mean, we, when we spoke before, like you know, you're all from Southeast East London, Bexley Heath, Kent, that way, yeah. I do so. Long way from there now, aren't you? <laughs> Long way, and
1: I, I've missed getting back over the last year or so because they usually ask, I come back in the around about sort of February March time each year, and then again in in October uh, to, to to visit family, but also do some work, some church work, but also I kind of do sort of fans nights, sort of the football fans nights, and I'll often get back to a game. In fact, the last time I was over, uh, I, I think the last match I went to was a was a QPR match. Um, and I remember being at Loftus Road with my wife there and then coming back and we we're into the pandemic. So I've missed, uh, missed getting back, get my fix of fix of England and a bit of yeah. English football and humour.
0: <laughs> Hopefully we'll be back soon. Um, Gavin, let's talk about the book then, because it came out a couple of months ago, May. Um, tell us what what made you do it now, because obviously you've been retired for a, quite a, a bit of time now. What what was it um, for you that thought at this point I want to tell my story? Because obviously your story, as we'll get on to in a second, is... Much, is a different and more interesting than maybe others have had all those why now and how's the book been
1: well the, the book is called um a greater glory uh from pitch it to is. pulpit um and uh i wrote it myself i didn't use a, a ghostwriter um and i've been asked to to write my book a few times over the years, and you know, you get asked as a player or later on in your career, and said no, it's not the right time. And then I worked for Match of the Day on BBC, not the right timing. Then, then I left, left it all, and moved into church ministry, and, uh, and left the country, and all of that. And um, and and I turned fifty, what three years ago now, and I thought that's a significant milestone, half a century. And my path has been a little different, as you suggest there, you know, from, from being a, a Premier League footballer to, to you know, a BBC today pundit to uh, a church pastor. And so I thought now is a good time to write about that life story and that journey with a bit of maturity as well to reflect upon it. Um, and so if I sum up my book, it's obviously it's a it's a football biography. Um it, but it's a story more than that of life in all of its complexities set against the backdrop of the beautiful game and with a light of, of my christian faith upon it uh as i sprinkle that that in and and so there's a human interest side to it as well as these you know great stories of football you know great football managers and leaders and the games and all of that you know i talk about um life and death and disability and racism and mental health and Uh, suffering and family and fatherhood and all of these things even career and how to start again in life and so I hope there's something for everyone in there. Football fans will will, will really like it. Uh, Those who have an interest in the Christian faith or thinking about life in a deeper way will will enjoy it and and ultimately you know uh, there's something more to life than than football fame and fortune. Uh, There's a greater glory to be had and that's why it's called a a greater glory. So I hope people enjoy it and be helped by it. It's a hardback, 246 pages. Um, and uh, yeah, people can get it on Amazon uh, right away.
0: Good stuff. Yeah, I've, I will implore people to get that because, as you say, the human interest to it, I've read a mm-hmm. lot of autobiographies and, and we talk a lot about them on the show as well because they tend to f- have the same formula. But I think, mm-hmm. as you say, yours offers something very different. So yeah, I implore p- to people to check that out. Um, Gavin, let's talk about the 90s. I mean, for you right in my head is kind of there's three separate parts you know you think of the, the start of the decade when you were very much part of the beginnings of the newcastle rise that we would go on for the 90s then yep. being part of the massive chelsea rise even as well and, and yep. you know, being the scourge of man united and then qpr at the end of it how how do you when you look back at that decade what what, what memories stick out instantly for you from the 1990s
1: well uh Great memories. First of all, I had hair <laughs> and thick hair. Don't worry about that. You would
0: have a big head yeah. of hair. Yeah, that's thick true. Head
1: of hair. which <laughs> got significantly less as the nineties progress. Um, but no, I mean, my my memories uh, of uh, you know the 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 nineties. Uh, I, I got married in nineteen eighty nine, and and Harry Redknapp bought me uh, from Gillingham to to, to Bournemouth. I've been at QPR as a kid, yeah. as you know. Made my debut under Jim Smith, had a few appearances, um, been you know in England under 19 set up, and I was at a long, uh, sort of a good contract with QPR, but I was keen to play every week in that first team. Went to Gillingham, a couple of divisions down, my dad was manager, had 18 months there, and I clocked up about 80 appearances. So I'd really established myself as a midfielder, and um, the aim was to come back up again. Harry Redknapp. Bought me for a club record, 250 grand, which seems nothing now, but it was a club record for Bournemouth and Gillingham. Uh, They were in the second tier then, which would be the championship. Had a year there and in 1990 uh, moved to Newcastle. Jim Smith came, he'd gone to Newcastle as manager, came in for me. And it was that move to that big club that, you know, I hope would take off for me. And so being part of the change at Newcastle with... Aussie coming after Jim, Aussie Odile's coming after Jim Smith, and then Keegan coming yeah. and taking us to the Premier League was, um, yeah, it's like a, uh, in my book, I call the chapter on Newcastle, I call it the black and white roller coaster because it was very up and down um, for a while there. And such a big club, a sleeping giant, as you see now, you know, there's that kind of massive support there.
0: One football, the bus, yeah. Oh,
1: football fever, but not quite achieving what they should do. Um, and of course Keegan came and, and, and changed everything there and uh, and I was his captain and and so I had my most free scoring days, I think, in terms of goals per game, 46 goals in under 100. You were top
0: scorer, wasn't you, for one season? You were top scorer for Newcastle apparently, yeah. Yeah, top
1: scorer I got 22 one season, 18 in my last season Dave Kelly was a top scorer in the last season but yeah, a lot scored a lot of goals lots from midfield um, and then Um, my my son was born at the end of the season that we got promotion to the Premier League and Jake, and again, I I open up about this in my book Uh, Jake was born with one hand and it was quite traumatic it was quite a shock at the time we didn't know it was coming we only had one scan and uh, we wanted to move back down to London where we were from where my wife's family was and uh, Kevin was brilliant he said, you know, I want you to stay but I won't outprice you Glenn, of course. Then Glenn Hoddle gets the Chelsea job at the same time, and it was just a no-brainer to move from to, to Chelsea. And then again, part. So I was part of the building blocks with Newcastle, and then became part of a Kings Road revolution yeah. with with Glenn. And and the years with Glenn, there, um, you know, FA Cup final first season, European Cup semi-final the next season, uh, semi-final of the FA Cup the next season, and gradually growing a bit bigger and better squad as we gained the likes of Dan Petrescu and Rude Hullit and Mark Hughes and Vialli and Di Matteo and Zola. Um, it was uh, a good time. So that, you know, I'm hit now the mid-90s, end of 96. But of course, then Rude Hullit took over from Glenn Hoddle as manager. And you, I could see I wasn't in his plans. And I, I wasn't really... Um, It wasn't the fact that I might have been a squad player at Chelsea that would have bothered me too much. It was just really the way that Rude handled things. He didn't communicate well with players and I'd been club captain there for three years. And so I knew my days were probably numbered. And then it was where to go. Strasbourg in France were interested in me in the the French Premier League. And my mate Tony Cascarino had gone out to France to play for Marseille. He was saying you love it here. It would suit you. They were looking for a number ten, and I was talking uh, to them through through an agent about going. And then QPR came in, and just come out the Premier League. Yeah. And I looked at that squad, and I thought, and Chris Wright, had, the owner, had money to spend, and you got Trevor Sinclair, Alan Big, Alan McDonald was still there, Simon Barker, Andy MP, um, and I'm thinking that's some good players there, you know, and they wanted me and John Spencer. I thought if we go there. We could really change things around. And it was like going home for me because of from 15 years old, I've been at QPR as a schoolboy. I signed. Um, so once QPR came in, I just knew I was going to go. I knew I'd step down a division to go just in the, in the great hope that we'll come back up with QPR. And so that was, that took me to the end of the nineties and into the beginning of 2000, when I obviously didn't get promotion with QPR, but uh, but still finished with the club that that I loved, you know.
0: You mentioned some great players there as well, especially your time at Chelsea. Who for you in that period? I mean, when I talk to players who played under Glenn, even at that point, they say Mm. how good Glenn Hodder was, even at the very end of his career. How good was he to train with? And what was it like seeing the likes of you say, it's Hullit and Viali up close?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Kevin Keegan called me up after I was... You know, I'd for Chelsea and he said, listen, you're going from one big club to another, he said, but you will also learn more from playing with Glenn Hoddle in training than anything else. And Glenn was player manager for the first season as well. So I, of all the players I played with, and that includes um, Zola and Hullit and uh, Bialy and those guys, I still say Glenn was the most wonderful player to play with. And his brain was just on a different level to everyone else um you could make i just if glenn was playing sweeper and he'd come into midfield i'd just make a run and and i'd literally hear the ball just spinning around my ear and just landing perfectly in my path so uh glenn uh wonderful football mind and didn't have any real speed wasn't a great tackler you know wasn't you know he was tall but he wasn't like renowned as a strong man but just as a football maestro um loved playing with uh with Mark Hughes because that's a proper target man with real strength and, and I didn't realise actually he was a Chelsea supporter when he was younger um, yeah so I used to sit next to Sparky on the coach um, going to games and you know we used to chat and he's a very quiet mild-mannered real nice guy and I never have thought he would go into management um, but of course you know he did um, and then uh, of course Hullett again you know world footballer of the year kind of just a different he was past his best when he came to us and he was still better than everyone else um he was just an a brilliant athlete but put football brain on top of that and you've just got an unstoppable force um and then zolo you know was a magician who went down he came right at the end of my sort of days at Chelsea but had a a little bit of time with him and just to see him in training and his dedication taking free kicks afterwards and his humility you know his humility to kind of always give people time and never thought too highly of himself just endeared him to everyone
0: Before before we let you go I must ask you about that transition because it's such a unique profession i suppose it is for you now to go from what you did as a footballer into a pundit and now what you're doing how how did that come about when was that moment you thought you thought that is this is the path basically for gavin peacock going forward
1: yeah i'd been a christian since i was 18 i wasn't brought up in a christian home but i i became a christian at age 18 and you know football had been everything to me up until then and and my god if you like and if i played well i was up if i played badly i was down and and then just one night, my mum went along to the local church. Uh, I was living at home at the time, as I said, 18 years old. And I said, I'll keep you company. And I went to a youth meeting afterwards. And I pulled up in, you know, my XR3i, Ford XR3i, got the 1980s sports car, nice car. I had the Moloch to match. Um, and I had everything the world says to make you happy. I had the great career. I had a little bit of money in my pocket. I had a bit of fame. Uh, a growing fame, and these young people didn't have anything that I had. Uh, They weren't in the in crowd, I was, but when they spoke about uh, Jesus and and when they prayed there was a joy and a reality they had that I didn't. And it, it was then that I heard the minister talk from the Bible about you know the who God was and what the good news of what he's done to to save people through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was and uh, I realized my biggest need wasn 't the approval of the crowd on the Saturday, but to be in a right relationship with God who created me and to give me purpose and identity in life and and I believed on uh, in jesus then and and I was from that moment then i'm i 'm a Christian footballer, and i never but I never thought of'd going to church leadership you know there's christian's in many walks of life until um it was around about 2006. So by this time, I'm at the BBC. Everything's going really well. I just finished the World Cup in Germany with Bebe, and my career was really going high. I'm, you know, I was turning down work. It was going that well. And my wife got really ill. And it's funny how suffering can recalibrate your yeah. thinking sometimes. And I was just thinking about the life. And, you know, uh, I was reading the Bible and, t- you know, passages talking about Uh, biblical leadership and the need to pastor people and um, I thought maybe that's for me and you know I'd always been in been a leader of all my teams and had that kind of ability to communicate um, when I was doing the BBC stuff so I thought I'll investigate it and I started doing some studies at Cambridge University I was still doing match of the day and everything and once I decided doing those studies I thought I'm going to give it all up and, and take some time to do my master's degree and um, people will think I'm mad, but this is uh, something I think I'm called to do. And um, over the next few years, it appeared that that was right. And then we came to Canada just to finish it off, just to just to get away to anonymity for a while, yeah. uh, where people wouldn't confuse Gavin Peacock, the footballer, or the football pundit, with Gavin Peacock, who was going to be a pastor. So, But then we ended up staying. And uh, I'll never say never to returning, but that's where we are for now anyway. And, uh, you know, it's been a difficult decade in so many ways. It's been the hardest decade of my life, but in other ways, it's been the most rewarding.
0: Good stuff. Well, thank you very much for talking to us. Good luck with the book, Gavin. Um, and I'm, as I said, it's out there now to buy it on Amazon and everything else, so do check it out. Gavin Peacock, thank you for joining us on Alive and Kicking.
1: Cheers, Ash. Cheers.
0: Welcome back to Alive and Kicking. Uh, we're halfway through a very fun and detailed chat about Chelsea in the 1990s um, with Neil Barnett, who was part of, almost the fabric of the club. And he's made me smile by mentioning Club Call on a number of occasions. It probably means, Neil, I listened to your voice back in the 90s, because I would have run Club Call quite a lot listening to QPR. So yeah, I would have probably heard your voice talking about, I don't know, Jerry Francis leaving or Les Ferdinand's. Going to somewhere else or something? No, like no,
3: that. I left. I left QPR ninety one. So in fact, oh, Jerry even earlier, Francis, Jerry Francis was coming in as manager as I left. So I was there in the days of Jim Smith, Don Howe, Roy Wegley, my hero, or Roy Wegley. Well, of course, I knew him from Chelsea anyway. Yeah. But but yeah, but uh, and uh, and um, Trevor Francis, um, uh, yeah,
0: thank you yeah. Barbara playing manager. Um, let's talk games then, uh, Neil. Um, again, we've we've obviously mentioned a few of them already in terms of some great games for Chelsea. In the 1990s um if you could pick one though what game stands out for you for for chelsea
3: um i'd go with the 97 fourth round of the fa cup okay to liverpool two nil Ah. down at half time four two winners in the end uh Gianluca Viali Vialli was preferred to Mark Hughes that day. Uh, the the Divine Front Two of Hughes and Zola, uh, but Vialli had had a good game the game before, and he was preferred. With two 0 down at half time, and there was that famous moment mm-hmm. uh, as the teams walked off at half time of Steve McManaman holding up zero two with his fingers at Dan uh, at Dan Petrescu, uh, and uh, we came Hughes came on at half time it, um, pulled a fast one he, he went 3-3-1-3 three, w- three, three, three was his formation in the second half 3-3-1-3 three, three, three. and the one was Di Matteo and the reason he went that shape was that John Barnes was playing hol- holding midfield as he, he'd become the kind of playmaker for, uh, uh, for Liverpool by then uh, and was pulling the strings uh, and he wanted Di Matteo to stop Barnes. And when that happened, they just collapsed. Marquise got the first goal. Zola smashed the second goal to all, and Viali got the, Viali got the next two. And there was a bit of an explosion uh, with about 10 minutes to go uh, uh, between a few players. And Petrescu just walked up to Steve McManaman. And pushed his two hands into his chest, one with four fingers and one with two, uh, in order to pay at that absolutely glorious, sexy football, born and 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 flowered.
0: Wonderful. Is that the the game with the famous celebration as well, where they all sit on the ground? No, and... that was
3: Middlesbrough. That was the first oh, okay. home game under under Hullet, and that was uh, Di Matteo with his uh, with his portion for um, artistic uh, creativity. Great player, great bloke, Di Matteo. loves his food. Um, loves a cigar, loves the good
0: life, great guy. Ed, you, you have said we said about you and, and your Chelsea connections in the tavern. I mean, that yeah. I remember that game really vividly. Um, what other games for you do, to stand out for, for Chelsea in that era?
4: Um, one I sort of thought off the top of my head was actually, um, I think Neil referred to it earlier on, was the uh, Cup Winners' Cup final, I think it was, in 1998. Um, and I think Stockholm, yeah. And I seem, I seem to recall uh, Zola being a substitute that night, and then coming on and scoring within about ten seconds of him um, coming on yeah. the field. Mm. And what, actually, knew no, Seventeen seconds, seconds to be seventeen precise. seconds. <laughs> wow, I was Don't get going. that wrong. <laughs>
3: why, why was
4: why was Zola why was Zola on the
3: bench, Neil? Can because he, he he wasn't fit enough to play the oh, final league right. game of the okay. season, and Viali said anyone who doesn't isn't fit for the final. Start right. the Cup Winners' Cup okay. final, and and there was quite a falling out between them over it. Oh, actually, right. um, and and quite interestingly, just a little aside here, um, I cancer at the time, and I missed the last couple of uh, home games of the season. Uh, I, I, I had bladder cancer, and and um, uh, and when I I knew that I was in a race to get to the Cup Winners' Cup final, Lucas said to me, uh, "The same goes for you." As uh, for the players, I expect you to be at the last home game of the season. <laughs> Otherwise, you're not coming to Stockholm. And I was at the last home game of the season. And in <laughs> fact, I went down to the training round for the first time the day before. And Luca actually stopped training and came over uh, uh, and uh, to see me. So it was he. He, he was true to his word. Generally, Kebia
0: Matthew Man United had some battles, as we've mentioned already, with Chelsea in the nights. Was that was that a game? He almost became like a bogey team, didn't they? To, to Man United was that a game you? always feared during that period playing Chelsea
2: yeah well I mean when you said about games that stand out in your mind the first thing that came to my mind and I don't know how many I'm sure I'm sure Neil you'll remember it um was a game November 1990 it was live on the match with our friend um Elton, Elton. Wellesby, and, it, and it was a 3-2 win for Chelsea and um
3: I we brought Chelsea, the kids in yeah the
2: yep, and they really Taught United a lesson, basically. And bear in mind, this was I know it was the beginning of the decade, but it was when United were just starting to turn the corner into a team that were capable of winning. I mean, they went on and won the Cup Winners' Cup that season. They were FA Cup holders. Then they obviously went on and, you know, a couple of seasons later yeah. went on to win the first. We, we
3: brought in uh, Jason Cundy in defence, Damian Matthew in midfield, yep. Graham Sturt and Graham are so playing. Exactly. Uh, and uh, Dennis Wise got the winner with a penalty. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah.
2: Chelsea raced into a two goal lead. Palace That's scored known right. goal. United pulled it back, and then yeah, it was a a three two win for Chelsea. I just remember being a, it being a really epic game at the time with two teams that were that were sort of going places. Really, as I mm. said at the start, the beginning of this decade, there were two teams that were really going to evolve over the over the next ten years, and that was. And I'd throw in
3: one game at the end of the decade as well: a one all draw in the San Siro at AC Milan in the Champions League, uh, where where the equaliser was Dennis Wise running in behind some bloke called. Um, Paolo
0: Maldini. I've heard a song about that quite frequently. In, <laughs> yeah,
3: and, and uh, it was, it was, it was a, I mean, just, just the occasion. The San Siro, I have this theory about football stadium that they're two different animals, empty and full. So uh, the best stadium I've been in empty is the Camp Nou. The best stadium I've been in full is the San Siro. And in the same way in England, the best stadium empty is Villa Park. It's such a beautiful stadium, Mm. Villa Park. But hey, it's never full. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it will be with Gerard. uh, (laughs) And and the best stadium full, I don't know, probably, I hate to say it, but probably Anfield. Mm.
0: Uh, let's talk about one of my favorite subjects, um, kits, Neil. Uh, how, how much do you take notice of kits? And if you could pick a favorite, maybe a good and a bad. Well, and less kit-
3: and less as I get older. Like, yeah. Uh, and less and less as it gets more commercial, because I just hate the way business takes over. I love Adidas and, and the Three Stripes. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, Chelsea and, had some
0: uh, bangers in the 90s, though, didn't they? They had, you know, we think of the orange and granite kit of, of the. Whole well, well, let
3: me tell you, my favorite was probably the Kurs the kit. Uh, yeah. Uh, that we won the FA Cup in in 97. I, I in 2014 I did a tour of American pubs. I've, I've got a radio show in America, uh, and I did a tour of American pubs for the World Cup, the best pubs to watch football soccer in 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 America. And we used to do a two-hour live show uh, before a USA game. And I was in this. I was in this pub. The first one I did was in Dallas. Uh, and I was in this pub. It was three stories and everyone was dressed in their American albums kit. Uh, and I went around uh, people who were drinking uh, with a microphone. And remember, this is going out on radio live and, and it's a mighty big radio station. Mm. It's a satellite radio station, Sirius XM with 34 million subscribers. And and I was going around and I was saying, what are you drinking? And they'd go up. Uh, they'd either go Ah, All-American, Bud Light, or All-American, Coors Light. They were all the same, these people. And my reaction every time was the same. Oh, so you're driving then. Um, And um, (laughs) to which I got great either booze or cheers. But Coors, I I used to get free Coors because of the work I was doing. And I drank it religiously to try and like it. It was crap. It was urine. It was bloody awful, but the kit was good. It yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. was, was a very, very special kit. Are there any Chelsea kits head on the in the football tavern hanging on the walls in your head? Uh,
4: the one that uh, yeah, the one that Neil Neil mentioned there, which is the uh, the cause. I think it was blue and with sort of yellow yellow uh, collar, and I think they had a few uh, red and white ones in the early in the oh, early nineties yeah, yeah, as very well. Nice was, uh, was, uh, very mm. nice commodore, very nice kits. I do have actually. I do. Arms. Speaking of kits, actually, I do have a question for Neil. Um, he might know where I'm going with this. So it was the equivalent of forgetting your PE kit. There was a game uh, at Coventry, Coventry where Chelsea actually wore Coventry's kit. Now, yeah. was that just a simple case of they forgot the kit or was it because the ho- the, the shirts were too close together? I, I just can't remember the, the, the scenario around it. Um, <laughs>
3: I, I, do you know, I can't, but I, I know that the uh, kit manager at the time once turned up to a, a reserve game when he was reserve kit manager without the boots for the whole squad. Right. And the so game got had form. to be delayed. So he <laughs> did have form, yeah. yeah. But um, on that occasion, I think that, uh, I think it, no, because the Royal Blue would have been okay against the Light Blue. I think he just mm. forgot the kit. Yeah, yeah okay. but it was we wore the Coventry third kit I think not even yeah. the second it was kit. the red and black yeah. squares uh, uh, and we yeah, lost yeah. I remember we lost 3-1 uh, and it was it was a pretty diabolical game of football yeah mm. an evening game
0: Matthew I'm not going to ask you about kits because your passion is, is, is goal nets what were the goal nets like at Stamford Bridge in the 90s
2: <laughs> <laughs> well this is this sums up the, the change of the, in the Premier League era doesn't it? I mean the, the, the beginning of the decade you had those classic deep nets Stanford Bridge had that I think dated right back to the fifties, and I'd say maybe a uh, very deep goal net. You know, when the ball went into the back of the net, yeah, you know, it was about an eight foot walk into the net <laughs> yeah. to get the ball out. Um, so yeah, that's the that's the thing that springs to mind for me. My sad fascination with goal nets. Obviously, as the decade wore on, we went we uh, went to the uh, the standard sort the of square net that, with with the evolution of of Stanford Bridge, which we've said. I mean, mm-hmm. the ground changed.
0: Great, great cars i was gonna say i was
4: gonna say if, if you missed the these goal nets that matthew's talking about you'd have to run 50 miles and sort of round a car park together yeah the, back, the best
3: the best goal celebration in the 90s was the opening game of the 91 um, 92 was it 92 93 season uh, a two-all draw um uh and uh with oh, goodness me i've forgotten even forgotten who it was against now um and and um we were 2-1 down with four minutes to go uh when our substitute making his debut the geordie joe allen uh who had yeah. come through uh, the ranks at newcastle with gaza uh, and joe allen who who is a great friend of mine now and who uh, i keep telling uh went into the wrong career. He should have been a stand-up comedian and, 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 and not a footballer. Um, he, he, uh, he scored the equaliser and he ran behind the goal to, to uh, celebrate and he jumped the barriers which were about 20 yards behind the goal he went past all the cars for the disabled jumped the barriers, ran up to the shed about 40 yards behind the goal, he was out of breath by the time he got back, he'd run <laughs> so far, he'd never run so far in his life, it was just the most brilliant celebration
0: Wimbledon uh, I think Neil, I think it was It was G-
3: Wimbledon, you're uh, absolutely right I that. I'm not taking
0: that as a, yeah I, I wouldn't know that I've googled it but yeah it was Wimbledon uh, yeah, yeah it was Wimbledon,
3: uh, Wimbledon. it was, it was uh, just so funny. He was he was the guy, uh, uh, another 1990s story. Uh, he was the guy who coined the joke, uh, such a shame, such a shame. If Tony Cascarino had had six shots at John Lennon, he'd still be alive.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Poor old Cascarino. Right, we're going to um, finish on the Chelsea list with Neil picking a Chelsea 90s 11 um, that, you don't need to go in too much detail, Neil, but if you were picking and 1-11 to 11 of that decade, any formation, I'm, I'm not sure you're going to go with the... What was the Hullet one? 3 3 one. No,
3: no, I'm <laughs> going 4-4-2. Four, four, I'm going 4-4-2 four, four, because that's what we played was, most and of the And that's the decade. 90s, yeah. Uh, Ed de Hoy in goal. Uh, we had some good goalkeepers. Dave Besant yeah. started the decade. Dimitri Karin. Uh, uh, we, we, I love Dimitri Karin, but, but Ed de Hoy came in and... and uh, uh, he couldn't catch the ball, but he was a great shot saver, and, mm. and uh, he we won trophies. He but he was the he was a Dutch goalkeeper in the nineteen ninety four World Cup. Yeah. Good goalkeeper. Uh, back for Steve Clark, club legends uh, at right back, uh, and a, a, someone who played changed position in later years just because he knew football, understood football, and oh my God, is he showing that now as Scotland manager? Centre backs, no contest: Marcel and Desai and Frank Leberth. Who, within a year of partnering each other, were our best centre backs ever. Yeah. Since they've been superseded by the likes of John Terry and what have you, but 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 absolutely brilliant. Left back Graham Lassau, uh who left uh, in ninety three, went and won the league with Blackman, came back in ninety seven, and by then was easily the best left back yeah. in England. And and uh and Babiara was a good left back as well, uh, yeah. um, and Dorigo at the beginning of the decade, but Graham Mossou. A dream midfield I mean we had some great midfielders who I'm leaving out but a dream midfield I'm going with the diamond we won the FA Cup in 97 and the Cupman's Cup in 98 with a midfield diamond and it uh, Dennis Wise holding Dan Petrescu on the right Gus Poyet on the left mm. and Roberto Di Matteo at the front Tasty. With apologies to so many that yeah. I'm leaving out there from Eddie Newton to, to what have you um, um, but but that was the midfield. Then up front, Gianfranco Zola. And then I've got to find someone to partner him. Now, this is the problem. Mm-hmm. Mark Hughes was his perfect partner. Gianluca Vialli just, was just a wonderful uh, uh, person. Um, earlier on in the decade, we had people like John Spencer and and, and some terrific players. But I'm going to throw somebody in there who didn't really play centre-forward, who came as a sweeper who was transformed for the first time in his life into a central midfielder or more, a number 10, really. Uh, uh, and who just changed the club beyond belief, and that was Ruud Hullit. Mm. Uh, he could, play could, have played, <laughs> could have played anywhere. He could have played yeah. and, anywhere. And Ruud Hullett only played 52, 53 games for Chelsea, but he marched with those games into my best-ever eleven. He's no longer in it because obviously things have changed again since. Yeah. But, but Rude Hullet changed everything. Glenn Hoddle changed everything. And then Rude Hullet changed everything. And, you know, great question is, uh, what people have changed your football club? Not your team, but your football club. Now, I mentioned about Zola changing the football, but I don't think he changed the club. Hoddle and Hullet changed the club. Uh, Ken Bates and 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 later Roman Roman Abramovich changed the club, but Hullet changed the club, and Hoddle did, and that needs that needs huge recognition.
2: Yeah, that was something that Glenn mentioned when we had him on the show the other week, wasn't it? How the impact that that he had, like you say, on the whole club. I mean, people say the same with Bergkamp going to Arsenal that he changed the the, the outlook in terms of training and the diet and the the routine and that kind of thing. And yeah, I mean he he's probably the the one of that era that that made so much difference. I mean, Cantor yeah, but made... you say that
3: but Wenger was the man who changed Arsenal. Wenger changed football in in in, in the Premier League era, but but Bergkamp changed the football. I maybe he did change the club. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I suppose but... I
2: think it was a tandem. I think it was the perfect match, wasn't it? Um cuz Burkham obviously brought in with, with him that sort of the influence from the continent and then it, it worked perfectly hand in hand with what, what Wenger wanted to do. So, yeah, I think that's, I think those two are the the, the, the main ones. I mean, people say that Cantona changed United, maybe I think more so on the pitch than off the pitch, but then there's always so, that talk of how he would stay behind and do extra training and what have you. But I, I I think it's definitely Bergkamp and and certainly Hullet and that was backed up by what, Glenn Hoddle said himself to us the other week. So, uh, well, yeah, it was, was almost was,
0: Burkham for Chelsea, wasn't it? We learned that last week yeah, from yeah. That, yeah. that Chelsea mm. almost signed Dennis Burkham yeah. which was a bit of a shock to all of us. Which and, um,
4: Ash, I was just going to, I was just going to at that point about you know sort of the, the link between the Hoddle interview and obviously talking to talking to Neil today, and the fact that we asked Glenn about bringing Rude in, and he said that. He didn't take him down to the training ground because it wasn't very nice. He didn't take him to the stadium because it wasn't very nice. He said there was building works going on, so he took him for dinner on the King's Road. And I think That's that right. Kind of I think that kind of sealed the deal. We kind of looked around the King's Road and thought, Oh, this is mm. this is quite nice. Um, whereas if he'd have taken him to the stadium, it may have been a different story and who knows what could have happened.
0: Yeah, we're keeping our play at Harlington and we're talking 30 years later. still yeah. Not for much longer, thankfully, because we, we have yep. got a new training ground being built as, as we speak. But yeah, Harlington is not... A good well,
3: well Chelsea trained there all through the 90s and Ray yeah. Wilkins always used to say, uh, although he wasn't with Chelsea until the very end of the 90s uh, as a coach, but of course he'd played there. Uh, he always used to say, because it's right next to Heathrow, mm. uh, that if, uh, and it's so windy, that if you're out of form, just hit the ball hard, and you can play a one-two off a landing airplane,
0: a jumbo jet, <laughs> and, and you get your touch back. In fairness <laughs> to Ray, he could probably find a, a landing airplane because his passing range was that <laughs> bloody good. So. Um, we're going to finish with some just somewhat awry of Chelsea Neil. If you could pick a player outside of Stamford Bridge, outside of the Chelsea bubble you were in in the nineties, um, who who did you enjoy watching of that decade?
3: What you really mean is who did I hate watching? (laughs) Yeah, possibly, yeah.
0: We we were playing Chelsea. Uh, uh,
3: The the player in the 80s, in the 90s, uh, who damaged Chelsea the most was Alan Shearer. Alan Shearer, before his injury in 97, where his leg collapsed in a pre-season game at Goodison Park in the Mercantile Credit Trophy against Chelsea, and I was there... um, uh before that, uh, he was, for me, the best centre-forward in Europe. Mm. And and uh, I had an argument with Rude Hullet about him, actually. And Rude Hullet, I remember saying to me, what can he do? What can he do? He, he hasn't got a trick. He hasn't got a trick. And I used to say, he's got one great trick. Every time he gets a ball 30 yards from goal, he puts it in the <laughs> bloody net. <Yeah. laughs> uh, and, of course, Rude went to Newcastle, but by that time, Shearer was a changed player after mm-hmm. that injury. Rude went to Newcastle and finished up dropping him against Ireland yeah. and got sacked. Um, and, and we were... Uh, uh, that was '99. We were in Berlin for, uh, for a Champions League game against Hertha Berlin away. And um, the team news came out. We were at the airport uh, and the team news came out that, that uh, Hullett had dropped Shearer I remember why is he turning around to everyone? We just lost to to um, we just lost to her uh, to Berlin two one, and everyone was miserable. And why is he turn around to everyone? He goes, "Weedie dropped Shearer, Weedie <laughs> drop Shearer, he's going to get effing sacked. He's going to get effing sacked." And everyone started smiling. And true, he was right. He got sacked the next day. Yeah,
0: yeah we we've, yeah we've talked about that at length. Um Gordon, then let's finish with a quick Shearer mention then from you boys. Um, it's obviously Matthew. We've talked about him a lot, but it's an easy... One to go to, but I, I seem to remember Shearer scoring quite regularly against Chelsea as well. Am I right in thinking that, Neil?
3: Yeah, freaking. I remember one at Blackburn, I don't know if it was a the year they won the league, where he raced from half away line, he got to about 30 yards from goal. Kevin Hitchcock was in goal and he hammered it into the top corner. I mean, he really was a player in those days, mm-hmm.
0: guys. Was there a player that you always thought as, as fans that when they were playing you just knew in the 90s coming to you first Matthew that they were just going to like you and they were just going to have a great game against you
2: um again I'm, I always seem to go right back to the start of the decade don't I but um I mean John Barnes you can yeah. say for Liverpool who I still think is one of the greatest players I've ever seen live he seemed to always turn it on but then he seemed to turn it on against everybody in mm-hmm. fairness um such was he how brilliant he was before he had that that terrible injury. So yeah, Barnes always used to fill me with fear and dread because he just knew uh, he was such a com- complete player. He wasn't just a jinking winger. He could shoot. Mm. He could head. He could volley. He was, he was a brilliant player. So yeah, in, the, in those sort of early early couple of years of the nineties, just as Liverpool were coming to the end of their their dominance and just before United were starting theirs, you could say Barnes was always a, a threat. Um, I felt, I mean, he sort of put me on the spot. I mean, Shearer was always a obviously a threat. I think Shearer was a threat to whoever he played
0: against. Yeah, but- we well, loved scoring yeah. against United, didn't he? So he liked to yeah. put it one over them. Ed, anyone you didn't like as an opposition when you, your team, <laughs> who you never revealed, but who <laughs> you, it's against um, you? Well,
4: I'm not, I think, well, I think going back to the original sort of question, I think it's more is about who you enjoyed watching. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. you enjoyed watching Gascoigne and Canton and all of them sort of players. But the one player I used to enjoy really watching was Ian Wright Right. Mm. Because Ian, Ian Wright just seemed he just looked like he enjoyed playing football and it was like he was he was a fan who'd just been giving the job as a professional footballer and every time he scored a goal he just seemed to physically love it you know like the mm. like real joy on his face and he was he was just such a, he was such a character. Um, so, yeah, I think Ian Wright for me is one player that always kind of stands out from that, from that sort of 90s period as someone who. I'm going to steal a, a great... story here. I'm going Go to steal, on, the steal story. It. This, this a Michael, story.
3: This is a Michael Dubery story. Um, Michael Dubery was a substitute, Chelsea against Arsenal. And Ian Wright was only a substitute. And uh, Michael Dubery was doing a few stretches uh, uh, on the touchline. And Ian Wright suddenly came bombing past and bombing back. And he he shouts at Doobs, Doobs, warm up, you're going on in a minute. And Doobs went, what? And he's running back and forth, warm up, you're going on in a minute. And Doobs turns around and says, I'm not going on. He says, yes, you are, because I am. He says, why does that mean I am then? He says, because Frank Above can't stand playing against me. And (laughs) Ian Wright went on. Two minutes later, Frank Leberth goes down, holding some part of his anatomy <laughs> and rolling over. Comes off. Michael Dubry replaces him. And the first time Ryan Wright gets the ball, he goes flying past Michael Dubry with the ball on the pitch at Highbury and he screams at him, told you would be coming on dooms
0: <laughs> <laughs> No, for sure, for sure. I can we imagine Ryan Wright de- uh, definitely doing that one. Uh, Neil, thank you so much for sharing your memories. Uh, your impressions, which I've been very much impressed with throughout this chat, um, and reminding us of Club Call as well. Um, you mentioned your radio show. You do that. Um, where else are you up to these days, and where can people no, go?
3: I've just got this radio show, a two-hour show. Uh, it's a daily show. I do it three days a week, two people presenting it, it throughout uh, USA, uh, where they are absolutely hooked on football. Mm-hmm. About We do the major leagues, English, uh, Italian, German, French, Spanish, um, and MLS in, in the USA champions league especially they adore it and it's it's um, it's it's you know nothing's going to replace uh, american football but as i keep saying to them uh, there's two kinds of football american football which is the uh, lesser sport uh, and global football which is the major sport yeah
0: Brilliant. Um, and guys if they want to if you want to follow my merry men Matthew where can people follow your ramblings and are we plugging the next episode of Mr. McClare's podcast
2: yeah well you can find me on Twitter at Matthew J Chris same on Instagram as well and um, I don't know if I mentioned did we did I tell you we got uh, Brian McClare and Nigel Winterburn reunited we, You American did but we worked shouting again and yeah so if you haven't listened to it I'd say it's a brilliant hour of those two chatting not just about the brawl and how it started and I mean basically they're good mates now well they came across as good mates, on the but it was it was more about the um, the rivalry between United and Arsenal in the nineties, which I think is a fascinating story. That you
3: got you got to get Pat Nevin on with uh, Brian McClay. We've had They're him on, mates. He yeah, was
2: yeah. on episode uh, two, and uh, we we chatted for about three hours, so we had to edit that <laughs> down.
0: But, um, and it wasn't even a yeah. football, was it? <laughs> no, no. We try not to
2: talk too much football. It's life and everything that goes with it with the yeah, Brian McClay well.
0: podcast. And so, um, Ed, shooting. people want to get involved in the tavern. You're about to hit a landmark Twitter page as well so boost up Yep. so
4: yep so uh at tavern football we can be found at tavern football if anybody wants to stop by for a chat and a beer whether it's a virtual beer or you're actually having a beer uh modern day football nostalgia but a story swap in uh
0: everyone's welcome so thank Good you stuff. and you can follow the show of course at ak90s on Twitter um, I want to say Instagram But I, Instagram have missed my password And got the email wrong So I'm trying to work that out at the moment But that's modern technology for you um, I've managed to go a whole show Talking about Chelsea And not mention Kevin Gallon Scoring against them Every time he plays But I'll, I'll, I'll leave that for a, another yeah. time <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us Thank you to Neil And the guys uh, We'll be back soon With more 90-ness This is Alive and Kicking Until next time Keep it 90s